Hello and welcome to episode 43 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. In today's case, we examine how a double murder in a sleepy village in coastal Lincolnshire was not as random as initially appeared. But before we start, I'd like to say a huge thank you to my Patreon supporters this week. That's Alexandra Emerson, Amanda Jane Lamb, Melissa Williams, who has increased her support. Thank you, Melissa. Andrew Billington and Carol Dixon. I really appreciate all your support and I hope you enjoy the extra content and bonus episode 7 will be released this week. I'd also like to announce the winner of last week's book competition to win Chris Clark's new book about Robert Black. The winner from our Facebook group, come and join us if you're not there already, is Dominic Cook. Congratulations Dominic and I'll be in touch in the next couple of days to get your details to get that book sent to you and Chris thank you ever so much for donating this book as a prize. Before we start a quick word from today's sponsor which is Harry's. As regular listeners will know I use Harry's myself and like my somewhat delicate personality my skin is also sensitive and Harry's is just great for sensitive skin. And you can now get a Harry's shaving set worth £11.50 delivered to your door for just £2.95, which just covers the costs of postage and packing. Just head to harrys.com slash truecrime. And for me, it isn't just about the great shave. As you probably know or have guessed, I'm not so good at being told what to do and following rules, especially when I don't agree with them. The founders at Harry's share that philosophy. Andy and Jeff were fed up with being overcharged for razors, so they found the solution. Start their own company. So get started shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for just £2.95. You'll support this podcast and get this awesome trial set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel and travel blade cover by going to harrys.com slash truecrime right now. That's harrys.com slash truecrime. This episode begins with a double murder in August 2004. So let's start by taking a look at the music we were listening to, or not, at that time. The UK number one was Baby Cakes by Three of a Kind, just ahead of the fantastic Libertines with Can't Stand Me Now, and then Busted with Thunderbirds. I know you like it. I know. In the US, the charts were topped by Juvenile, featuring Sulja Slim, you can tell I'm a fan, with Slow Motion, and they had just displaced Usher with Confessions Part 2. In the Australian album charts, Paulini was at the top with One Determined Heart. And let's take a quick look at the news of this time. The Scream and Madonna, two paintings by Edvard Munch, were stolen at gunpoint from the Munich Museum in Oslo, Norway. Hurricane Charlie, a Category 4 storm, struck Florida and devastated the surrounding area. The 28th Olympic Games took place in Athens, Greece, with Kelly Holmes winning two gold medals for the UK. And Europe's Premier Football Team, the mighty Leeds United, after being relegated the year before, it was just a blip, started their glorious championship campaign of a 1-0 win over Derby. With hindsight, maybe Glorious wasn't quite the right choice of word as Leeds stumbled to a 14th place finish. But this is the year. This is the one. This year, we will return. 
Trussthorpe is a small village in Lincolnshire on the east coast. It's around 150 miles northeast of London and 40 or so miles east of Lincoln. If you've been there, you know it's a really quiet, sleepy place. Joan Sterland, a 53-year-old cancer nurse, and her husband, 55-year-old John, who'd previously worked in a textile factory, they lived in the small seaside resort for around about eight months. And except for Joan's visits to the local bingo club, they didn't go out much. They were seen by neighbours as a lovely, quiet couple who very much kept themselves to themselves in their small chalet. Then just after 2pm on Sunday the 8th of August, a black Volkswagen Passat stopped outside their home. Two men wearing boiler suits and baseball caps got out, leaving the hazard lights flashing. Very soon they emerged again and drove off, leaving the door to the bungalow ajar. It was seven hours later when the police arrived at the house. Inside, they found the two dead bodies of John and Joan Sterland. John had been shot six times and his wife was shot four times. As the police investigation began, the police increasingly began to fear that John and Joan had been murdered in a revenge attack for the crimes of their son, Michael J.J. O'Brien. Back in 2001... 22-year-old Michael O'Brien and his parents all lived in the city of Nottingham, although they didn't live together at that time. O'Brien had been in trouble with police and he just had a reputation for being trouble. That year, a friend of O'Brien's, a 32-year-old bodybuilder called Gary Salmon, was sent to prison for causing actual bodily harm when he violently attacked a man who owed money for drugs to O'Brien. It wasn't Salmon's first time in the slammer, He'd been in there before with O'Brien when they'd committed a robbery together. On his release, Salmon continued to make dangerous enemies and at the start of August 2001, Salmon was standing outside his home when a man emerged from a van and shot at him three times. Luckily for him, he survived this attempt on his life. It was a few weeks later, late at night, when the two pals Salmon and O'Brien out drinking in some of Nottingham's bars. They weren't having too much joy, mainly because of the casual clothing they were wearing, which didn't match the dress code required. When O'Brien was turned away from Obsession's nightclub by a bouncer on the door, due to wearing trainers and a tracksuit, he formed his fingers into the shape of a gun and told the bouncer he would come back with a gun and shoot him dead in the head or the chest. Nice. They went back to O'Brien's home where they smoked cannabis and drunk champagne with O'Brien's 16-year-old girlfriend and her 14-year-old friend. And this was the time when Salmon got word that there was a late-night lock-in at another venue, the Sporting Chance Club. The two men headed over, but again they were unsuccessful, being blocked on the door. There was a scuffle and O'Brien was left with a nasty cut on his face after being hit with an object which he thought was an ashtray. This was, he believed, caused by an 18-year-old man, Jamie Gunn. The Gunn family are infamous in the Nottingham criminal fraternity, but O'Brien, he didn't seem to care about this at all. He was livid and he wanted revenge. The two men returned home to change into dark clothing and also Salmon produced a gun wrapped in a coat, which he handed to O'Brien, who pointed the gun at his girlfriend, who gave the following account. He pointed the gun at me. I said, don't do that. And he said, 
I'm not going to shoot you. That's what I'm going to do to him. Back at the Sporting Chance bar, four men left the pub and got into a Renault Laguna car. Driving the car was Marvin Bradshaw, who was aged 22. He was a hard-working, well-liked shop fitter who lived locally, and he wasn't involved in crime at all. Also in the car sat Jamie Gunn. Now, Marvin and Jamie had been friends since they were toddlers, having both grown up on the notorious Bestwood estate in Nottingham. The two men, as with many people of that age, they were part of a group of close friends from the area who would meet most weekends at various pubs around the city. At just after 4am, as the car edged out of the car park, Jamie Gunn, who was sitting in the back seat, saw two dark figures with balaclavas approach the car and he instinctively ducked his head. A shot pierced the night and Marvin Bradshaw, the driver, hit in the head, slumped sideways. Marvin drifted in and out of consciousness until the police and paramedics arrived, but he couldn't be saved. Covered in his friend's blood, Jamie held on to Marvin until help arrived, watching him fight for his life. But he died shortly afterwards in hospital. While this tragedy unfolded in the car park, O'Brien and Salmon returned to Salmon's house in a state of panic and agitation. O'Brien's girlfriend said that the two were only gone for a quarter of an hour or so, and when they returned, her boyfriend told her, I shot him. He was a bad man. Watch this being in a newspaper tomorrow. This is a good time to pause and talk about the situation in Nottingham at this time, and also the role of the Gunn family and their associates in the city. In the late 1960s, brothers Colin and David Gunn were born onto the Bestwood estate. There are numerous accounts, but one blog, the Left Lion blog, describes the situation by the mid-90s, when their gang, the Bestwood cartel, were running a large-scale operation, which spanned money lending, burglaries, extortion, robbery, drugs, car ringing and fraud. Colin Gunn was known to enforce his leadership with extreme violence. There are stories of him nailing people's hands to tables and taking to knuckles with a hammer or a baseball bat. But at the same time, their PR in Bestwood is just exceptional. And to this day, residents still talk about a fireworks show they organised one year or the £100 they left in an old lady's birthday card. It's almost like the Robin Hood effect, giving to the poor, looking after the community. One of the most notorious crimes their suspects have been involved with occurred in September 2003. Marion Bates was shot dead in her jewellery store in front of her husband and her daughter. Two men, James Brodie and Peter Williams, had burst in wearing motorcycle helmets and attempted to rob the place but it didn't go as planned. Williams was later jailed for 22 years, but Brodie, he's not been seen since. According to accounts from informers, they were worried that he's the sort of man that might have confessed to police and told them all he knew and a lot more. So he was allegedly shot, his head and his hands were chopped off and his body was fed to pigs on a farm in North Nottinghamshire. As leader of the Nottingham Bestwood cartel, six foot four inch bodybuilder Colin Gunn was a powerful man and he drove a Porsche with a registration plate that read P-O-W-E-R. His former girlfriend said that Colin talked about killing people as if he was just ticking things off a standard to-do list. And author Carl Felstrom, 
who wrote a book about the gang, said that by the late 1990s, the guns had secured influence over Bestwood and the surrounding areas. His henchman, who referred to Colin Gunn as the big man, would emerge from the back of a van carrying baseball bats and follow his orders. Those who showed disrespect were dealt with mercilessly. Often their arms were broken or warning shots were fired at their family homes. Running the drug trade and protection rackets, the two earned enough to buy several 4x4s, sports cars and somewhat garish gold chains and rings, as well as Gunn developing a penchant for cocaine. But Colin Gunn didn't need his lines of cocaine to make him feel confident. He felt supreme already. He'd been implicated in no less than four murders and more than 50 shootings and he hadn't been charged with a single crime since 1998. In 2004, Colin Gunn was at the height of his powers and he was invincible. The police were concerned for the safety of O'Brien and Salmon and it was a race to find them before the Bestwood cartel did. Salmon went to ground and O'Brien was quickly arrested. His mum, Joan Sterland, didn't think that her son was guilty and she thought he'd been set up and she made this clear to anyone who would listen. She knew about the Gunn family and their reputation but she ignored the threats. She continued to protest her son's innocence. However, five days after the murder, two men on a motorbike stopped outside her house just after 10pm and fired shots through the front window. Her husband John was lying on the settee and Joan was standing when the first bullets hit. John dived over and dragged her to the ground and safety. But John and Joan were utterly terrified and moved out that very day, leaving all their belongings behind. On the same day, an invitation grenade was thrown through the window of Salmon's house and his girlfriend's property was firebombed. The day after that, Kevin White, a close associate of Salmon and O'Brien, was shot and wounded by a pillion passenger on a passing motorcycle. As you can see, the Gunn family and their cartel weren't the sort of people you messed about with. John and Joan Sterland were offered places in the witness protection scheme but turned it down. One of the reasons was because it was known just how much the Bestwood cartel had infiltrated the police force and they did not feel safe. But they also knew that if they became a part of the scheme, they'd have to change their identities and they'd completely lose contact with friends and family, which they just didn't want to do. The Stirlands moved first to Bridlington on the Yorkshire coast and then to Gaul and by December they'd settled in Trusthorpe which is a quiet seaside resort not far from Skegness. They rented a bungalow on the Radio St Peter's estate in Trusthorpe, which got its distinctive name from its role as a wartime RAF radio station. They thought they were safe. Back in Nottingham, in the city's Crown Court, O'Brien was found guilty of the murder of Marvin Bradshaw. His defence was that his pal Salmon alone had been responsible for the killing, his defence team pointed out that O'Brien had never been convicted of an offence involving a firearm, while Salmon had stashed a shotgun in his cupboard because of an ongoing dispute with members of the local underworld. Salmon had also drawn further suspicion by going on the run immediately after the shooting, whereas O'Brien had stayed in Nottingham. But the jury didn't believe O'Brien and they found him guilty. This led to some shocking scenes in court. We've heard of quite a few on the podcast, but... This is pretty much as bad as it gets, I think. When the jury announced a unanimous verdict, an unrepentant O'Brien flew into a rage 
and he directed his aggression at Marvin Bradshaw's family in the public seats. He threw a cup of water at the victim's relatives and he shouted to Marvin's devastated family, I'm not bothered, I'm a bad boy. Your son looked like a donut with a big hole in his head. I don't care. Sentencing O'Brien to a minimum of 24 years in prison before parole would even be considered. He turned to O'Brien, who has a six-year-old son, and said, Having been hit by an ashtray, you armed yourself with a single-barrelled shotgun. I've no doubt you told your friends that you were going to shoot a man. You went back and shot a wholly innocent man in the back of the head. I've no doubt at all you meant to kill him. This was a calculated and deliberate murder. But even after this, still O'Brien showed no remorse and he barked back, I would do that sentence standing on my head. After the trial, Detective Inspector Paul Cotty praised witnesses for their courage. He said, Investigations into shootings are difficult because of the fear of witnesses to come forward. Thankfully, in this case, we had three young juvenile witnesses who gave us significant information and were then prepared to come forward in court and give evidence. I want to thank them on behalf of Marvin's family because without their courage to stand up and give evidence, O'Brien could still be on the streets today. The hunt went on for Salmon. The shattered family of Marvin Bradshaw spoke of their relief at the conviction, but they said they would never recover from the horrific death of Marvin. In a statement released by his parents, Christine and Lyndon, and his brother Curtis, they said, Because of the actions of Michael O'Brien, our son is dead. What he did caused our family immense misery. O'Brien murdered Marvin, an innocent man, in the most horrific way imaginable. He didn't even know Marvin's name when he shot him dead. The fact that he shot the wrong man is no consolation to us. However long he spends in prison, it will never put right the evil he has committed. A prison sentence will not bring Marvin back to us. We have to live the rest of our lives without him, and the thought of that is terrifying. Throughout this ordeal, all we've ever wanted is to see justice done for Marvin, and thankfully justice has now been done. And two and a half years later, Salmon was also tracked down, and in 2007 he was sent to prison for his part in the murder of Marvin Bradshaw. During his evidence, Salmon denied the gun used to kill Marvin Bradshaw was his. He said that O'Brien produced it from a bag. But the jury didn't believe Salmon and they returned a verdict of guilty. Judge Michael Stokes told Salmon that he would serve a minimum of 18 years behind bars before he could be considered for parole. You've been convicted, and in my judgement correctly, of a truly terrible crime. Marvin Bradshaw was a totally innocent man who'd done nothing wrong at all and he was shot in the most cold-blooded manner. I cannot understand the absolute devastation his family must feel. It may be that O'Brien is an exceptionally dangerous young man, but I have no doubt whatsoever this would not have happened if you had not provided him with a pump-action shotgun and ammunition. There is no moral or legal distinction between you and O'Brien. Let's go back to Jamie Gunn, who, as you recall, had been in the car with Marvin Bradshaw. Although he was physically unhurt in the attack, he took the death of his close friend incredibly badly. He was going on drug fueled benders on a nightly basis with some members of the cartel and his friends and family were worried that he was in self-destruct mode 
and he no longer cared about what happened to him. He wasn't eating and taking lots of drugs, drinking heavily. As you know, this can affect the immune system and Jamie started to get sick. The conviction of O'Brien gave him some comfort. But according to his stepdad, David Sheffield, although he was glad that justice had been done, he went back to thinking about Marvin again. He just had the vision of that night in his head. And three weeks after the trial on the 2nd of August, Jamie Gunn was found dead in his mother's bed by a younger brother and sister. The official cause of death given for 21-year-old Jamie was pneumonia. His mum, Julie, described his reaction to the death of his friend Marvin, saying, It was indescribable. He was screaming and crying. He just couldn't believe it. A steep decline had begun. Jamie held Marvin in his arms after being shot. I think he may as well have died then too, she said. Tragically, Jamie's five-and-a-half-month-year-old son, Reese would grow up without ever having known his father. Members of the close-knit Bestwood cartel were overcome with grief. For a 19-year-old man described in the press as a doorman, Jamie Gunn was unusually popular and well-connected, at least if his funeral was anything to go by. There were some 700 people in the church with his funeral, with another 300 stood in the rain outside. A horse-drawn, glass-sided hearse waited at the gate below, alongside two motor hearses bearing flowers, including huge wreaths saying Jamie, brother and Jim Bob. As Jamie Gunn's funeral took place, just a mile away, a demolition team was tearing down the Sporting Chance pub. The coincidence of funeral and destruction was a fitting one, for it was at the Sporting Chance, in the dark early hours of a Saturday morning one year ago, that the terrible chain of events began. Throughout the funeral, Colin Gunn just couldn't control his tears. He thought of Jamie as a son. O'Brien had been sentenced to life, but Colin Gunn was angry at his lack of respect he'd shown in court. He decided that someone would have to pay for what had happened, and he would take revenge on O'Brien's parents, Joan and John Sterling. When Jamie Gunn died, his uncle stepped up his efforts to discover where the Sterlings lived. Gunn wasn't short of contacts, and he arranged for a former BT worker, Stephen Poundall, to be contacted in the bid to find the couple's address. Gunn's associates did not tell him why they wanted it, but he spoke to former colleagues Anthony Kelly and Andrew Pickering, who ran a successful computer search, and they passed on the details to Colin Gunn. Kelly and Pickering later admitted computer misuse and were given suspended jail sentences. Both were sacked by BT. At around 10.30pm on Saturday the 7th of August 2005, a neighbour of the Sterlands in Radio St Peter noticed a man lurking by their front door. It didn't appear serious enough to make a big fuss that evening, but the next morning the neighbour did let Joan know what she had seen. Joan was concerned enough to ring the Nottinghamshire police, who she stayed in touch with ever since the murder of Marvin Bradshaw. Just before 2pm the next day, the day that John and Joan were murdered, an officer called her back to discuss the report. The police were clear that in the call, although Joan was concerned, she was not in a state of panic at all, and her priority was to inform them, and she didn't want the police arriving in large numbers, which would have alarmed her neighbours in the quiet streets. The Nottinghamshire officer passed this message on to his Lincolnshire police colleagues. It wasn't long after the call ended 
that the Volkswagen Pesach car, which the murderers had used to kill John and Joan, was discovered on fire two miles away. Police were later able to reveal that it had been stolen eight days ago in Nottinghamshire. The Lincolnshire Police Force began their investigation. After their murder, Colin Gunn wanted to find out if the police had anything on him and his gang. He used an intermediary to liaise with a corrupt police officer, Charles Fletcher. There were rumours that Gunn had been controlling Fletcher, even as he first joined the police force so they'd somebody on the inside. Either way, he'd carried out numerous searches of the police national computer for Gunn in the past, including searches about where the Sterlings were living in Nottingham shortly after the murder and the shots were fired at their house. He also carried out searches after Gunn became a suspect of the Nottingham jeweller, Marion Bates, which we referred to earlier. But Gunn had made a mistake as a phone central to the murder of the Sterlings was traced back to him. And in March 2005, he was arrested along with Michael Tricky McNee, John Russell and several other members of the gang. It was alleged that McNee and Russell had actually murdered the Sterlings, but the plot had all been controlled by Gunn. The three men were charged and appeared in front of a jury at Birmingham Crown Court. The key to this case was the discovery of what became known as the murder phone. It was alleged that Gunn bought this pay-as-you-go phone purely for the murder, and on the day of the attack it was in the hands of Michael McNee. As McNee waited for his instructions from his paymasters, he whiled away the time playing games on a mobile phone. Police knew that at 2.12pm on the day of the murder, Gunn was trying to get through to him, but McNee's phone was engaged. He was phoning a WAP site to play more games. Six minutes later, a call did get through to McNee, and in a 14-second phone call, the order was made to move in and execute the Sterlings. McNee and his accomplice, Russell, climbed over a fence at the back of the property, entered the tiny chalet, and gunned down John Sterland and his wife, Joan, as they took a breather from the intense summer heat. The two men escaped in the Black Passat when they were picked up by Colin Gunn in a different vehicle, who took them back to Nottingham to dispose of the phones. The so-called murder phone had been bought in Woolworths in Skegness, and when police found evidence of that transaction at 0647 on the 4th of August, they were able to tie it to Colin Gunn, who'd paid for it by cash, but was caught on CCTV at around the same time. I'm surprised by such an amateur mistake from such a serious player, aren't you? Detectives also found a SIM card belonging to another of Gunn's phones, and this contained evidence of calls between him and the co-defendants at key times. This SIM card had been given to an associate in Nottingham, but this person had failed to dispose of it properly. The prosecution argued that this was a well-planned, well-organised operation, and it would involve planning and to some extent a rehearsal of where the vehicles would have to go. And it also involved a large amount of reconnaissance work in the village of Trustthorpe. Mobile phone analysis showed that Colin Gunn had made five separate trips to the area the day before the killings, taking with him various members of the gang. Call records showed that he'd left the area by 10.30pm, but one of the other defendants, John Russell, stayed in the village. This is the time that the prowler was noticed by Sterling's neighbours, and this was likely to have been Russell. But by the early hours of the morning... Russell had joined the other gang members at a nearby caravan park, which has been used as the murder HQ. More mobile phone evidence was damning, as it put the two accused men very close to the Sterlands' home 
in the hours leading up to the double murder. The defence argued clearly that they were in Trustorp at the time, so if not the gunman, they were on-the-spot lookouts. During the trial, Russell protested his innocence, claiming that he and McNee were actually on the Lincolnshire coast to babysit a consignment of amphetamines, which was hidden in a beach chalet. I am a petty criminal, not a murderer, he said. In March 2006, the jury came back with their verdicts. Guilty. Colin Gunn was told he would spend at least 35 years in prison. Michael McNee was jailed for at least 25 years and John Russell was jailed for 30 years. The judge told the three men, these were shocking murders by any standards. They were nothing less than executions of totally innocent people. The Sterlins were killed in their own home for no reason other than one of the victims was the mother of somebody he wanted to take revenge on. Mr Justice Treacy described Gunn as a dominating leader of others, telling him, you are a crook, a villain and a large-scale drug dealer. You were the leader of this criminal gang. To your gang, your word was law. Colin Gunn wasn't used to being spoken to like this and he reacted angrily to the jury's guilty verdict. He turned to them menacingly and said, Thank you, you scumbags. I hope you die of cancer. He then directed his anger at the judge, calling him a paedophile, before he was removed from court. The judge continued, The utterly evil nature of what you did shows that you, as a criminal man, are prepared to commit the ultimate act of criminal violence as and when it suits your purpose. You are prepared to do that due to a perverted desire for revenge. Five other members of the gang were cleared of conspiracy to murder. The verdicts went down very badly among gun supporters on the Bestwood estate. That weekend, around 30 people started a mini-riot, setting fire to cars and causing well over £10,000 worth of damage. In November of that year, several people were sent to jail in connection with the Bestwood riot. So what do you make of what you've heard today? An innocent man... Marvin Bradshaw murdered as he was in a car with the wrong person at the wrong time and Joan and John Sterling murdered as they were related to Marvin Bradshaw's killer. It's hard to have any sympathy for O'Brien, the catalyst for this series of events. I wonder how, or even if, he and his friend Salmon feel about the lives that have been destroyed due to their actions. I suspect they really don't care, but I also suspect that when they come out of prison... They will never relax. They'll always be looking over their shoulders as there'll be plenty of people unable to forgive or forget their behaviour. Jamie Gunn has a tragic story where the poor young man was unable to recover from the loss of his close friend and dead at just 21 years old. So terribly sad, what could he have achieved? And one of his uncle who revenged his death by killing O'Brien's parents. Colin Gunn remains in prison And that's where he's going to be until he's in his mid-70s. But he still makes the news. While on remand at maximum security Belmarsh Prison, he and a fellow inmate attacked nine Muslims remanded on terrorist charges after he felt they disrespected Christmas. Then when he'd started his sentence at Franklin Prison, he attacked a prisoner who'd upset him in the gym, leaving him battered and bruised. And in October 2007, he hooked up with fellow inmate David Bieber the American who shot dead PC Ian Broadhurst and West Yorkshire Police on Boxing Day 2003, if you recall. The two men are gym fanatics and Bieber allegedly hatched an escape plan involving a helicopter and firearms. 
Colin Gunn asked if he could come in on it, but the plan was scuppered for it got anywhere and instead it ended up on the pages of the News of the World newspaper. More recently there was controversy that Gunn created a website to produce good PR for him and his community and that he was an avid user of mobile phones in prison and also Facebook where he sent messages to 565 people after being transferred to a prison where he claimed the officials had a relaxed attitude to social networking. I will be home one day and I can't wait to look into certain people's eyes and see the fear of me being there, Gunn wrote in one message, according to the Sunday Times. In another he said, It's good to have an outlet to let you know how I am. Some of you will be in for a good slagging. Some have let me down badly and some will be named and shamed. It's hard for us to comprehend, I think, just how much loyalty Gunn had built in his community in Nottingham. Returning to journalist Felstrom again, he says, Somehow under Colin Gunn's leadership, the Bestwood cartel was allowed to perpetuate a Robin Hood image on the Bestwood estate. It was the gang's reign of drug fueled armed violence that led to the city being nicknamed Shottingham. Interestingly, after Colin and his brother David were arrested in 2005, being jailed a year later, gun crime in Nottingham dropped by a huge 90%. And finally, we need to return to where we began, the Stirlands. You've probably been wondering throughout this podcast, as did I, why they weren't offered better protection from police. The Independent Police Complaints Commission did look into this case, and they found that Nottinghamshire Force's sharing of intelligence with Lincolnshire Police was unacceptable. The IPCC said in five separate areas that Nottinghamshire Force was found to have, I quote, organisationally failed, including the, quote, management of major crime, but that it was impossible to say whether the killings could have been prevented if the officers had acted differently. This was a very determined organised crime group, determined to seek retribution, and it would have been unlikely that no matter what was done that the Stirlings could have been saved, said the IPCC chairman Len Jackson. The commission investigated 13 officers from Nottinghamshire Police, and three have subsequently retired. It found the conduct of five serving officers fell below the professional standards expected of them. I don't know how you feel, but I wish the police wouldn't let officers retire to avoid a full investigation. Whether true or not, and we've seen it on numerous occasions on this podcast, it does give the impression of a cover-up, or at least a lack of transparency. Talking of poor policing, the final thread to tie up here is the corrupt police officer, Charles Fletcher. In October 2006, he was sent to prison for seven years for passing on information to criminals, including Colin Gunn. The court heard how Fletcher trawled police computer databases to find information, which was handed to the manager of a Nottingham clothing store, who passed it on to Gunn and others. Fletcher also revealed the IDs of suspects, witnesses and victims involved in other cases, as well as conducting intelligence checks on suspected criminals at their request. He then faxed information, which included details of surveillance, vehicles associated with them and information from anonymous informants to the suspects the court heard. In return for his services, the 25-year-old received discounts on designer suits from a Nottingham fashion store. Was it worth it? Was it worth it, Charles? Judge Saunders QC said that Fletcher's activities had put the lives of vital witnesses and informants at risk, damaged the morale of the Nottinghamshire Police Force and undermined the trust placed in the police by members of the public. He said, 
corrupt police officers do untold damage to the criminal justice system. Chief Constable of Nottingham Police, Steve Green, said he felt contempt and anger. He said that their base and selfish behaviour had damaged the reputation of the fine, decent, hard-working, honourable people who serve Nottinghamshire Police. We've been let down, and more importantly, the people we serve have been let down. Our integrity is our greatest asset. It must not be compromised. We've never flinched in our duty to investigate our suspicions and in prosecuting those who betrayed our trust. The court heard that Fletcher wrote to a friend while on remand, saying that it took him a long time to come to terms with the shame of my actions, but most especially the betrayal of all my old colleagues. In answering why, I feel my greed, vanity and naivety were to blame. I was blind to the consequences of my actions and chose to ignore them, he said. So selfishness played a big part in my downfall, as I showed no regard for how my actions would affect my family, friends and those close to me. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. To support the show, please head to Patreon slash UK True Crime and sign up for just £3 a month, which gives you access to all the bonus episodes plus other great content. Also, do please come and join us on our Facebook group. It's a lot of fun and it's interesting stuff as well. We discuss any aspect of UK true crime. Finally, don't forget to head over to Harry's slash UK true crime for all your shaving gear. And I'll speak to you again this time next week. Until then, from me, it's cheerio.